You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Ted Widmer. He's an historian, a writer, a librarian, and a professor at Macaulay Honors College. Professor Widmer obtained his degrees in history and literature of France. You can come back on, Professor, one time. We can talk about my my soft spot for Louis the Sixteenth. He received a master's in history and then a PhD in the history of American civilization from Harvard University. While at Harvard, he created the George Washington Book Prize, an annual award given to the best book on the Founding Fathers. I bet our former podcast guest, David O. Stewart, is in the running for that. His uh, he has book. been. That's right. Uh, Professor Widmer also served as a speechwriter in the Clinton White House, and he conducted extensive interviews with President Clinton while the former president was writing his autobiography. He has written books on Old Kinderhook, President Martin Van Buren. And he's written a chronicle of presidential races. He's come on today to the Leaders and Legends podcast, mostly to talk about his latest book. It's called Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. And as all my friends who make fun of me for being such a history nerd will attest, I have been a a voracious consumer of Civil War books and literature for about the past 30 years. Not sure how many books I've read. I'm going to guess a hundred or pretty close. And I'm going to tell you this book by Ted Widmer is at the top of the top of the top. It is absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Robert. You are welcome. You will not be able to put it down. It's wonderfully written. It's scholarly. It has wonderful anecdotes. And if you don't believe me, then just read the reviews because they are all absolutely top notch, including from probably the preeminent Lincoln scholar living today and former Leaders and Legends podcast guest, Harold Holzer, who wrote a review of it that was A plus in the Wall Street Journal. Ted, thank you for coming on the podcast. Enjoy it. So happy to be here, Robert. I picked up your book as we were talking before we started recording a little bit reluctantly. Like, do I want to read a book about a multi-day journey on a train from Springfield to Washington? It turned out to be one of the best decisions I've made this year. 
but what made you decide to focus on such a narrow timeline? I wish I could tell you I always had it mapped out. I I didn't. This book took over me instead of the other way around. I I thought this would be a kind of a fast book, and I wanted it to be. I wanted to take maybe one or two years, and it's only 13 days in the life of Lincoln. What, you know, why should it take that long? And then something about it just um, took over me. And Lincoln has that effect on you. He He's deep. It's not easy to get a read on Lincoln. And um, that that was one reason. But then I, I just found myself so interested in America in these 13 days. And the train goes almost 2,000 miles. And every little stop I wanted to do some research on. So I just sort of I kind of lost my mind for a couple of years. And I just read... <laughs> Read every newspaper I could from February 1861. Small town, bigger cities, the smaller the town, the better, because people wrote very expressively in small town newspapers. And I had a real feeling of the country um, at a pivotal moment, everyone wondering, what is this guy going to do? There were so many pressures on him. Most people had never seen him before, and most would never see him again. It was the only time they ever saw Lincoln. But a huge number of Americans did see him on the train. So I just read everything I could and wrote a version that was probably twice as long. And that took a long time to even do that. And then my editor said, are, are you out of your mind? You, you have to cut this by 50%. So that took another year or maybe more. But I was happy she made me do that. And in a way, this is a memorial to her, among other things. I, I had a w- wonderful editor who died at the, right at, as the book was about to come out. What was her name? Uh, Alice Mayhew. She was a legend of publishing at Simon & Schuster in, in New York. Um, so part of it was just, you know, my, my love of Lincoln. And I feel a little embarrassed to use that word because I'm supposed to be a neutral academic. I'm not supposed to love your topics, but I, I was appreciating the courage and wisdom and eloquence of this incredible thinker and speaker who, you know, at, at the worst moment of our history found the best things to say about us. Really an incredible performance. The degree of difficulty was through the roof. And then he goes up and does a perfect execution of of a dive or whatever you want to call it. But, um, um, but also just the power of, seeing America. I felt like I was on the train. And if the reader has that feeling, that that is exactly what I wanted. I wanted the feeling of looking out the window, not, not just looking at Lincoln, but being with Lincoln, looking out the windows at America. So so I, I got kind of swept up in that feeling. You mentioned newspapers a, a few minutes ago, and, and for 2021, is not the best lens for which to judge the power of the media 150 years ago or so. But there were so many newspapers. I mean, in some, some of the bigger cities, there were six, seven, eight, nine, ten editions a day. That's right. But in some of these smaller towns, the newspaper was the only source of news. Like people didn't travel, obviously, the technology wasn't there. How important were the newspapers and the media in chronicling Lincoln's journey? Huge. Absolutely huge. He was really quite quiet during the year 1860 when he was nominated 
surprise nominee and then won. So he's become the president in this incredibly important election, but no one really knew that much about him. So it was important to convey something of his personality to the American people, um, the, the nervous northerners, but even more importantly, the people in the border states who he desperately wanted to stay in the country. They could have gone either way. So to get good reporting about him while he's on this journey was was really important. And he he did all he could to get favorable publicity but of course it wasn't entirely in his control because he can't control what you know presidents have never been able to completely control their their coverage and even on his best days there were mistakes made there there was a fair amount of chaos on this journey and i wanted to chronicle that too so you know the short version of the story is a, an unknown politician displays incredible qualities of leadership the word in your title of your podcast. He speaks these beautiful words, calms things down, helps Americans feel better about the country they have been and the country they are in transition toward being. And I think the transition is happening while he's on this train trip. Um, But even though that's a, a good story, a heroic story, like any great story, you know, and I had Homer's Odyssey was on my mind a little bit, or Don Quixote, there are hilarious mess ups. You know, there there are really big mistakes. He makes a few in in Indiana. He makes a pretty big one. And his supporters, you know, people in his entourage make mistakes. His wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, is always pretty close to getting him in trouble for one reason or another. And so <laughs> she's the, the Martha Mitchell of her day. Exactly. Um, she, she writes, she doesn't keep secrets very well. She's short tempered. And she was spending a little bit too much money. And while spending money, she was asking for favors from people who wanted favors from Lincoln and mm. his. And so that's that's not a good place to be. So he had all these problems. But in the middle of it all, he's, he's writing these incredible speeches. Is it safe to say that the journey itself and the chronicling of it and, and the notoriety and the fact that the American public, to the extent they could were following the journey was unprecedented. In other words, there was no other president who had this sort of prof- procession. Yeah. Uh, now you read about George Washington going to New York to be inaugurated and he stopped and he got feted. And, and that was obviously a completely different scenario because Washington was obviously the most, probably the most famous man in the world or one of the top three or four. Right. Uh, when he became president, as to, to your point, Lincoln was probably couldn't be picked out of a lineup by the vast majority of people who voted for him. Right. Alone the entire country. So how unprecedented was this journey, this 13 days and how it how it logistics of it and how it was covered? Well, you're absolutely right that every president had had some kind of ceremonial journey to the presidency. Um, Washington's was pretty important. He's the first president. He was actually going to New York City, mm-hmm. which was briefly the capital at the very beginning. And, and you know, that was a, a big deal. Um, he, he was on horseback, so it was a slow-moving procession. But there were fewer newspapers by far mm-hmm. in 1789. And also the technology of reporting had gotten so good by the time Lincoln comes around that everybody could 
get a report by telegraph of something that had just happened a few minutes earlier. So the level of interest was extremely high and the reporting was fast. Um, and, and of course, there, there was a great fear for the future of the country because seven states had seceded after Lincoln was elected. Seven states in the Deep South decided they didn't want to be part of the U.S. anymore and they were going to form their own country. So nobody knew what that meant. Really, I mean, in the South or the North, they were in uncharted water. So Lincoln was the personification of all of that. We always are excited about a new president anyway, but when he is the symbol of a huge change that might make America a different country or two countries, then the the level of interest was even higher. And the other point to make about Washington is the fact coming up from Mount Vernon on horseback to New York, he either passed through or passed by so many battlefields with which he was associated and the Continental Army was associated. It's just a completely different scenario. And I that's think he, right. would be, he would be the only one who would compare up until the time that. Lincoln. Yes, that, that's right. Well, was, Lincoln was also coming from farther away. That made it exciting, too. There was a pretty high degree of difficulty just to get from Springfield to Washington. He felt like he couldn't go through Kentucky and Virginia because they were not very behind him at all. Kentucky had not seceded and neither had Virginia at, at, at that moment, but he was very unpopular. And so he had to go wildly off the, the shortest route and that made it pretty hard. So it's not only the, the most newsy journey in, but it was a very difficult trip also. I would have to assume that Lincoln holds the dubious record of getting the smallest percentage of presidential vote in your home state in eight, in 1860. Did he break 1%? It was around there in Kentucky. Yeah, you're right. I mean, he has three home states and you're you're probably the most important one of them. I, I think I think Lincoln is really from Indiana. It's where he's formed. But of course, Illinois is the land of Lincoln on the license plate. But he's born in Kentucky, just across the, the Ohio. And yeah, he got a pittance of a vote there. Yeah, probably. I think you're right about 1%. <laughs> uh, what was uh, What was Lincoln's goal? This was meticulously planned. And you have to, you know, the audience has to remember this is before the lame duck amendment. So he wins in November, but he's not inaugurated till March 4th. Right. Now we have this truncated kind of two month period, but then it was a much longer period. He hadn't been very vocal. This comes out in a lot of Harold Holzer's writings that, you know, he'd kind of been waiting for events to develop and, and didn't want to be rash with what you're saying, especially with an eye towards the border states. But there was still a period where, and you detail this in your book, where they thought a compromise was possible. Like we've compromised before we can do it again. And Lincoln kind of, I got the sense, wanted to see how things played out. Didn't want to, you know, stir the pot right, or in any way mess up what was happening in Washington because he was all the way out in Springfield. But right. if you would have to boil it down maybe to one or two things, what do you think Lincoln's goals were by taking this trip and being so public while he took it when it comes to addressing crowds, talking to the media, that sort of thing? I think he wanted to um, keep those border states in so he couldn't say anything too anti-slavery because that might cause a state like Kentucky 
or Maryland to go out. And they're both incredibly important. Maryland, without Maryland, you can't even get to Washington, D.C. So he really needed to keep Maryland. And that, that it, as it turned out, was very difficult for him to get through Maryland. Um, he wants to connect with the governors. I think that was on his mind before the trip started. And he did meet with a governor in, in a, a lot of the states, beginning with Indiana and then Ohio, uh, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, very important states in the Midwest and, and North. Um, and that, you know, presidents back then had less power than they did in the 20th and 21st century. So you needed to get to know the governors. And he especially needed to because if he was going to call up an army, it would probably come through the governor. Exactly. I thought that's that that is the the best point with that is like I'm going to need you later, so I'm going to be nice to you now. Right. Exactly. But then I think as the trip is developing, I think a third cause is is becoming more clear to him with every day, which is that he is connecting with the American people. I'm not sure that was intentional when the train started. He had prepared one speech per day, and it was always going to be given in the state house of a state, like to the legislators. But then the train starts moving, and every few miles, there are people gathered by the track waiting for him to come out and talk. I don't think he knew that was going to happen, but it it happened. And the beauty is he rose to the occasion magnificently. So he just starts talking all the time. And I think he's even working it out. He's figuring out this better message his his speeches that he wrote to the legislatures. They're okay. They're not that great. They're, they're sort of formal, but the things he was saying to the people were, were magic. And that's where you start getting this better Lincoln. And so I think the third thing that it was almost an accident, this connecting with the American people, he didn't know he was going to do it and neither did they, but they connected with each other just at this crucial moment when they needed to. A lot of what you read about the Civil War makes you think that a it, it's inevitable or it's a foregone conclusion or the Union's victory was a foregone conclusion for what all the reasons that we either learned or didn't learn. Uh, but what was not, in my view, and please correct me, a foregone conclusion was that the North would fight to keep the South in the Union. And one of the things that came through in, in your book, either intentionally or just me assimilating other books and, and reading it while reading yours, excuse me, was the fact that there were a lot of Northerners were like, get the hell out. We're right. tired of you. We're tired of your slaves. We're tired of your bullying. You know, we've got all the wealth. You're going to come back to us eventually because all you have, what did, what did Rep Butler say? Slaves, cotton and arrogance is all the <laughs> South had. Uh, but that shouldn't be underestimated. That comes through in your book that there are a lot of people who a wanted to fight the South so that we could beat the living hell out of them based on all these years of them kicking the North around, which they right. did. Right. There was a segment who wanted to compromise and like, keep your slaves, just stay a part of the union, whatever it takes. Right. Lincoln was a little bit in that camp. Right. I think it's fair to say. Right. And then there's the other group that were like, hit the bricks. Yeah, there were, Lincoln was taking that temperature of the Americans and, and the leaders and the media of like, how much do you really want to fight to keep our Southern brethren as part of the United States? Right. Yeah, he had a lot of problems in the North as well as the South. It's absolutely 
right. And he had some tough moments on the trip in, in New York City. He's not popular with the leadership of New York. The mayor of New York was trying to float a plan to have New York and Long Island become a kind of independent new state. New York City and Long Island might become a new state. He had a name for it, Tri-Insula, for three, <laughs> three islands. Um, Fernando Wood, who, if you've seen the movie Lincoln, gets absolutely skewered. Yes, he does. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Lincoln's just got so many problems, even on his own side, on his own team. And you're right. It was a huge decision to go to war, to keep the country together. And not everyone was behind that decision. Um, I think it, it, it grew. I think he, he didn't know how big a war he was asking Americans to fight. I think he thought it could be quelled pretty quickly if he, if he got a bunch of volunteers for three months that they could make a big show of force and intimidate the Southerners. And and that sure didn't happen. Um, But I think the South too was a little naive about how easy it was going to be for them to start a new country. Um, And you see these tensions, he's working it out in his first inaugural address, which I don't talk about too much in, in the book, but I've read many times and He's both incredibly conciliatory in a way. He's saying we are still one country. We should forgive each other. We should be friends. But he does not accept that a new country exists. He never did. He never granted Jefferson Davis the satisfaction of of saying that he was a president of a country. He always called it a rebellion. And called him Jeff Davis. Yeah, that's right. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you get the sense that that there was a point during the journey where the enormity of the task finally dawns on the president elect? Well, he's he's saying it at all the way through. So even in the very first speech he gives, his farewell to the town of Springfield, Illinois very beautiful short speech he gives that I argue was actually extremely important in defining the entire trip. He, well, I think it's one of these moments where you get a real human being talking to other human beings. It's not a canned political oration. It's not Lincoln at a podium talking to legislators. It's just a man from a small town talking to other people in the town about the love he feels for them and how much he hates to leave them, but he's got a job to do. And it's the hardest job of any president since George Washington. And then he even adds a, a you know pretty profound religious thought, which is that without God's help, there's no way he can succeed. And, and with God's help, there's no way he can fail, which for him is a pretty strong religious statement. He He didn't, go into normal religion very often. He felt strongly certain spiritual things that come out even more and more later, especially in his second inaugural address. But he was known as a younger man for being a pretty free-thinking guy who didn't, did not love going to church. So um, that farewell address to Springfield is, is a really amazing moment where he, he changes gear 
and he stops talking like a politician and he starts talking like a, a friend and a neighbor. And I think that voice is what got Lincoln through all, all of the trouble. I mean, and, and I mean, he finally even sort of merges the two and becomes a kind of friend and neighbor and father figure and historian of America all at the same time in a speech like the Gettysburg address. He just keeps getting better until he's the greatest speaker in our history. And I very much doubt anyone will, will ever top him either. His first inaugural address is my favorite. I think it's just so me. It, it's the, the tone just couldn't be of any more correct. I mean, right. It, mostly because it's so backward looking in some sense, it's like, Hey, don't do this. We're all brothers and not backward looking, but it may be reflective is a better term. Right. It's different than the Gettysburg address because the war is in full flower. And then the second inaugural, you know, it's, it's over basically. Right. Uh, but the initial one, the first one is just so it's worded so perfectly for, for the moment. Yes. It, 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 it still surprises me. I mean, I've read them all probably hundreds of times and I still find little surprises in word choices or, um, I mean, that speech is surprising in, in our pretty politically correct era now, because he actually says slavery is fine. Slavery is, we won't disturb slavery where it exists, which is uncomfortable. We want our former politicians to have been more anti-slavery than they, they were in most cases. Mm -hmm. But he also does include pretty serious statements about you, you may not secede. You are not allowed to leave this country without a proper vote of the entire country. And there are you know, legal things that he's saying that are, are serious. That he's, he's saying this rebellion, this insurrection is, is not legal. So he's saying some things that the South hated to hear also. But then he closes, as, you, as you're saying, with the beautiful final paragraph, which he only added in the final weeks of writing it, about how we are all, we must not be enemies. We are friends. We must listen to the better angels of our nature in that, that famous phrase. Um, we fought an American revolution together. We remember, I mean, there's a piece of that that's about remembering the veterans. It's about the Patriot graves he talks about. Mm -hmm. They're in the South and the North. And to honor them, we need to stay a single country. And it's very beautiful. You're a speech writer and, and I've written speeches for political officials. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've made, I don't want to speak for you, but how many times I've looked back, it's like, hmm, you know, this is kind of buried in the fourth paragraph of a 10 paragraph Lincoln speech. I wonder if I just pull this out, if anyone will actually know and I'll get in trouble or, or is it actually something that fits but to, to, to understand the American language as opposed to the English language, which obviously would be delve deep into Winston Churchill, yes. but the American language start with declaration of independence is fine, but you get a PhD in Lincoln, Lincoln's writing, and you'll be able to write anything you want. That's right. I didn't want to be a complete Hoosier Homer, <laughs> Professor Whitmer, by going right to the very beginning of the podcast and say, talk about Indiana, but Indiana is very important to Lincoln, the young man was very important to him politically as a presidential candidate. Uh, and 
was important an important stop, almost a landmark stop uh, for Lincoln on his 13-day journey. Talk to the Leaders and Legends podcast audience, please, about why Indiana was so critical. It was absolutely critical to him throughout his life. Um, crossing the Ohio from Kentucky gave the small Lincoln family a, a new lease on life. We still don't know exactly why Thomas Lincoln took his family across the Ohio River, but it, it seems extremely important that you know he was leaving a slave state, Kentucky, and coming into a free state. Not that far away, but all the difference in, in the world. And, and there is evidence that Thomas Lincoln didn't like competing with slave-owning plantations. There's also different kinds of evidence that it seems like he was never very good at registering his claims. He was just disorganized and tried to claim land that later other people claimed more successfully. So he just didn't like Kentucky and and they came into Indiana and the descriptions are fun to read. Um, You can read them in Lincoln's law partner in Springfield, William Herndon interviewed a lot of Lincoln's early family and friends after Lincoln died. And it's still just a great trove of oral history about young Abraham Lincoln, sort of people who didn't have a much, much education, just remembering stories about him when he was a kid. And they're absolutely fascinating. Which would um, be firmly in the oral tradition of early 19th, early to mid 19th y- century America. Yes. And it was a pretty wild spot, Southern Indiana. And that's where, you know, all the famous stories about Lincoln walking for miles to read, to borrow a book or to do labor to pay off damage he did to a, he once left a book in a windowsill and it got wet and he did some labor to pay it off and um, tragedy struck too his mother died when he was nine years old of something called the milk sickness when a cow ate a plant that was poisonous the milk would become poisonous and then his sister died later and so there there were deep feelings pro and con in Lincoln's memories of Indiana. And after he moved to Illinois, he wrote some pretty strange poems. We don't often think of Lincoln as a poet, but he did write a few. And one was about his memory of his childhood. And there are lines about the deep pain of losing loved ones. So I think, you know, the death of his mother, I think, was a real tragedy that he never entirely got over. He was nine, as I said, and um, they had a special kinship, which he did not really have with his father. There, there's some evidence. They were just very different. His father um, wanted Lincoln in the farm working all the time. And Lincoln, he he did a lot of work, but he also loved to read a book and his there are stories about how that irritated his, his father. Um, so Indiana is full of all the joy of childhood, but also some, some unusual sadness in Lincoln's life. But then there is a little known phase that I became extremely interested in. So in his teenage years, he started spending time on a creek that fe- feeds into the Ohio River, Anderson Creek kind of near Troy, Indiana. And I think he spent some, some real time living alone or with, with friends the same age and 
beginning to to sort of work on boats. He he built small boats, like flat boats, rafts, and then he began to operate a small business, taking people around uh, the Ohio or halfway across big big ferries are coming down from Pittsburgh toward St. Louis, and he would take people from the shore on a little flat boat to, to meet the ferry in the middle of the river and get a little bit of money and then go back to the Indiana side. So you could not be closer to the divide between North and South than if you're a ferry boat operator in the Ohio River. And, you know, we often talk about the Mason-Dixon line, which is a border between Pennsylvania and Maryland, and it, it has importance. But the Ohio River is much longer mm-hmm. and more important. I mean, that was the north-south border, in my opinion. And Lincoln was living like inside the border. He's going to the Kentucky side. He's coming back to the Indiana side. So he's really seeing the differences between a slave state and, and a free state and forming very strong opinions, including he took two long trips with friends down uh, the Ohio and then down the Mississippi to New Orleans. And he saw slavery up close. He saw some terrible things. Uh, and, you know, what exactly he saw, we, we only have the testimony of these friends and neighbors, but they claim that he saw a slave auction and was really offended by it. Um, he was attacked by slaves in Louisiana and had to fight them off. And so he saw all, you know, he saw the, the, the violence inflicted on slaves. Why did he also, they attack him? Where, where? Why? They were, I think, just, um, they might have been escapees who were desperate. Um, it's unclear. And he, they, or they might have been slaves who were trying to get a little extra money for themselves but they came onto his small raft and tried to take it over and Lincoln fought them off with his, with his friend. So he experienced violence. I mean, on all sides of this question from, from slaves or, or escapees, but he also saw violence inflicted on slaves tied up uh, and on, on sale in a human auction. And he was, really offended by that site. So he he's just getting a lot of information in Indiana. And it's interesting to me that he in a pretty long and serious experience on the Ohio River. We don't hear about that as much as I think we should. I think that was pretty formative on him. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, which is in Professor Widmer's book, by the way, Lincoln on the Verge, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast is Professor Ted Widmer, who has written an absolutely indispensable, phenomenal book called Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington, about Lincoln's journey from Springfield, Illinois, to the nation's capital. You have a big chunk in your book about Indianapolis. You know, thank you for asking, because I was so focused on his childhood. 
I forgot about <laughs> what Indiana was doing for him in 1860 and 61. And the answer is a lot again. So I found out, there were, you know, I've spent decades reading about this guy and I didn't know until relatively recently how he got the nomination. And it was felt that he could pull in Indiana and Pennsylvania and of course, Illinois, where he was from by the time he was running, and that those states might not go for William Seward. And so he was attractive for his Midwestern qualities. And the fact that Seward's he was sort- from New York, Seward's from New York, which is a very important state, of course. But most of the other states, this is sort of still a little bit true in, in our crazy country, but that Anyone who lives in a state near New York dislikes New York. So <laughs> New Jersey, Massachusetts, you you name it. Where are you sitting right now, Professor Wood? I'm in Rhode Island. And um, oh, well. yeah, we we cheer against New York sports teams with passion. We we cheer for Boston sports teams. And, and didn't you give us Ambrose Burnside? Yeah, we gave you the magnificent We gave general. you Lou Wallace. <laughs> I Lou couldn't Wallace. hear this. We gave you Lou Wallace. Oh yeah, right. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are a lot of bad generals in the Civil War. But there was also the sense from the Midwest, like it's our time now. Like Chicago's booming. There's a lot of people. Absolutely. Out there. It's not the Midwest of you know Tecumseh and Anthony Wayne, right? Sort of thing. Like it's it, or even William Henry Harrison, quite right. frankly. But it's our time. So we've got Absolutely. this guy, and he's well known, and he's he's also what he's well known and in. in because of the Cooper Union speech, so he's known to the Eastern media a little bit, but but he's also attractive because he's not Seward. Right. Which was a big deal. I mean, Seward turned out to be a very good Secretary of State and, and advisor, but he was a little bit tarnished because even though his own morals were were fine, his main advisor was a political boss named Thurlow Weed, whose morals were not so fine. You know, he was from the the the, the urban machine of Albany, the, the statewide machine of Al- Albany in New York State. So anti-corruption, and, and the Republicans were a new party, and they were trying to run against democratic corruption. The Democrats had controlled the White House for, for a long time. I mean, there were one or two exceptions. So for the anti-corruption message, you needed a pretty clean candidate, and Lincoln was. And then he had the bonus of being able to swing all these Midwestern states. Seward, he would have had a good chance of them, but they weren't certain. And Pennsylvania was a key. Pennsylvania has a lot of electoral votes and they really did not like Seward. And they were willing to accept Lincoln if he made certain, well, he didn't do this, but his advisors made certain unsavory promises Mm -hmm. to Pennsylvania bosses at the convention. So by promising a cabinet position, that helped to get their votes behind him and Indiana and Ohio were there early on for Lincoln. So that, that helped a lot. Lincoln said, what make no promises that will bind me. Right. And, and they then did. They, they promised the cabinet, a cabinet spot to Pennsylvania. And they ended up choosing the absolute worst cabinet official in the history of the Lincoln administration. That's right. Simon Cameron, who, who when asked to define an honest politician replied, that's a man who, when bought, stays bought. <laughs> That's great. Wow, you're good, Robert. You, you're remembering more about it than I am. That's great. 
Indianapolis is a big part of your book uh, at the beginning. Uh, Union Station, which I used to work at. I worked at the hotel that really? sponsors wow. the podcast. Wow. Um, I did not know that was the first Union Station in the world. Yes, it was. That And that word back then meant the union of a few different train lines coming into the same bill. It didn't mean the union of the country, although it's kind of a nice a nice repetition there, but um, it meant like three or four or five tracks coming into the same building, which is how the trains were being built in the 1840s and 1850s. They were all zigzaggy all, all over the place. They were small local lines, mostly, but uh, Indianapolis figured out that it was really important to, to bring these lines in together and to build a building with some style to it, which they certainly did. And um, Lincoln came into that building on the eve of his 52nd birthday. So on February 11th, he gives that beautiful farewell speech, gets into the train, and then rides uh, through eastern Illinois to State Line is the name of a small town that I wonder, I can't remember if it's in Indiana or Illinois, but it's right on the border between the two. And Right around there was the first of a few possible assassination attempts. So someone had left uh, like a piece of fencing on the track, an impediment that might have caused some real problems if the train had gotten derailed there. Um, That was a pretty minor threat that they figured out. There was a a locomotive going ahead of Lincoln's train to, to find things exactly like that. Uh, in Cincinnati, there was a scarier threat where someone put an explosive device in a bag in a car that Lincoln was about to go into, and they, mm-hmm. they caught it. But um, anyway, so he, he comes through and then goes toward Lafayette, Indiana, and then comes down into Indianapolis. And it's a huge moment for everyone. It's certainly a big moment for Lincoln to be coming back into into his home state of his childhood as the president elect and then it's you know very exciting for indianapolis and so there are receptions everywhere and in indianapolis lincoln starts giving these speeches over and over again because people won't give him a break and he almost gets through the night perfectly but then there's one last speech he agrees to start giving and his he he takes the breaks off a little bit he he becomes the Lincoln talking to his friends as opposed to Lincoln, the stately politician. And in his last speech to a crowd in Indianapolis, he starts talking about the South's idea of a union. And he says, you know, it's really a whole lot like people who believe in free love instead of marriage, meaning you can come in and have a sexual relationship and not promise anything to anyone and it was hilariously funny and the crowd the crowd roared in the room in indianapolis and then as it was reported it was a disaster it was way too off color for anyone in 1861 and it's funny because we think of lincoln as pretty saintly and and i think he he was but he came close to telling a dirty joke on the first night of the trip and that was really a big problem for someone who's trying to establish his seriousness as the new president-elect. But he was known to be earthy among his friends. Yes. That, that even comes out in the movie, but it comes out if you read the biographies of how he loved those sorts of jokes and that right. sort of humor. We were uh, 
waxing rhapsodically about the first inaugural address a few minutes ago, Indianapolis almost played a role in that speech not being given as is. That's Take right. us through that near mortifying. That's one of event. my favorite moments of the book. Um, it's probably the most carefully guarded document in America is Lincoln's draft of his inaugural address. He's been working on it for months under conditions of great secrecy back in, in Springfield. And he's even had it typeset. So he's written a few versions of it. He took it to a printer and had a version printed so he could read it more, more clearly. And it's, you know, getting pretty final and it's, his response to secession and his plans for the future of the United States at the darkest moment of its history. And it's in a little black satchel, a black valise that he carries close to his body at all times. And he comes into the scene in, in Union Station in, in Indianapolis, and he gives it to his son, Robert, who's about 21 years old. And Robert is having the time of his life. He's just come back from his first year at Harvard. and Everyone who ever describes him says he had a twinkle in his eye and he liked the opposite sex and he loved going out into a crowd of young people and having a glass or two of of something to drink. And he's just really loving this moment. And so his father gives him this really important satchel with the only copy of the inaugural dress. And Robert does what any 21-year-old would do, or maybe even younger, I'm trying to remember, but... um, he just goes to the, the hotel baggage room, gives it to someone and says, can you take care of this? Probably got a little piece of paper and went off to have a good time in the hotel. And a little while later, his father wants to see the speech and asks him where it is. He said, oh, I, I checked it. And this look of horror comes over Lincoln's face and he runs downstairs. And with his long legs, he sort of did a, a high hurdle over the desk into the closet itself where there are about 30 bags that look exactly like his bag. And he just starts opening up everyone and people are, are, are kind of looking at him and laughing. And, but, you know, also a little, again, once again, not presidential behavior, what's going on. And Lincoln is sort of desperately opening and bottles of liquor tumbling out and people's laundry are coming out of these bags. And he just keeps opening them. I think he had to get a key too. And finally, he opened the right one, and it was there undisturbed. So it was okay. Indiana played a huge role in the Civil War, as as we know. It the did. winning of the Civil War uh, in, in more than one way. Uh, lots of ways we could talk about whether it's the finding of the uh, Lost Order 191 at Antietam that was found by uh, Indiana soldiers that led to McClellan somehow getting lucky and throwing away a win with one of his usual draws or, <laughs> right. or Oliver P. Morton, or, you know, the fact that uh, uh, Skylar Colfax became uh, speaker of the house from Indiana, right. eventually uh, Ulysses S. Grant's uh, va- uh, vice president, if I recall, but it, it's interesting in your book, how, how Lincoln's childhood where he, you could say he was, I don't know if you must say he's no account, but clearly he is, you know, the bottom rung. The family is, the family is struggling. Right. And for him to come through Indiana as the president elect 
it would have been wonderful to have had a chance to just ask him that question. Like, what are you thinking about? How are you, how are you processing this incredible reversal of fortune? That's right. But Indiana was only the first step and and we wouldn't have time to go through all the stops on the podcast, but are there one or two other stops that he makes uh, on his journey to Washington that you think were more important than others? Well, I loved all of them. I mean, I really, I must have spent close to a year. It sounds ridiculous, but on each state and its history, as I, I was writing this book that took me nine years to write. So maybe not a whole year, but, you know, a solid six months. And I just got lost reading the history of Indianapolis, the history of Cincinnati. I, I really appreciated that one too. And your I just Pitts, kept, your Pittsburgh chapter, I thought was really good. Buffalo, I thought yeah, was really good. Yeah. I, I just fell in love with all of those cities and I'm not from the Midwest. Although actually you're reminding me that when I was 13 years old, my dad got a job offer from the university of Indiana and we almost moved to Bloomington and we didn't, we ended up staying in Rhode Island. He worked at Brown, but it was a very close call. And I remember, um, thinking about life and I might've, you know, been different if I'd grown up and, and I always, I remember loving the movie. Um, is it breaking away? Oh, that amazing movie breaking away. You did witness some national championships. If you'd come down here, that's right. (laughs) And Hoosiers. I love Hoosiers also. (laughs) Um, but so, yeah, I loved all those cities you just named. Um, when he's in the final, 24 hours or so of the trip, it it gets really exciting and he's changing. And you start to see a sign of that in Trenton, New Jersey, he starts to talk about his own childhood. So that would be Indiana and how moved he was as a young reader. And, you know, we all know how hard it was to even get a book where he, he lived, but reading about the fighting of the American revolution. And again, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about veterans he was Lincoln was very moved by the stories of, well, the crossing of the Delaware and the surprising of the Hessians um, on Christmas Eve, 1776. And when he's in Trenton, he talks about how they must have been fighting for something more than just independence. Independence is good to have a, your own country, but if your own country is founded on good morals and other countries can then learn things from the way you conduct your own business. That's what Lincoln was saying was really special about America. It wasn't just that we got free of England. We got free in a way to give inspiration to people all around the world. And so he says that in Trenton while remembering the books he read about veterans of the American revolution. And then the next day he goes into independence hall in Philadelphia and continues the thought and talks about the Declaration of Independence and how he has never had a feeling in politics that didn't somehow come from that document. And I, I just thought that part magical. Something is happening to him, and I kind of felt it was coming into me a tiny bit, and I hope it comes into the readers. And then it's even more magical because it's when he's getting the intelligence that people are, are trying to kill him as he comes through Baltimore. So he's got to completely change his way of getting into Washington, D.C. So he's getting to the highest heights of eloquence as he's entering the, the most serious danger of the whole trip. Just just the 
the mental picture of Abraham Lincoln standing in Independence Hall. Yes. This gives you chills. It's, it does. It, it's such an amazing um, um, meshing of eras. One of the themes that runs through your book, and we're talking with Professor Ted Widmer about his book, Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington, is technology. How does technology both both aid in Lincoln getting out his message? And you and I are both kind of PR people, and we know mm-hmm. how important that is. Yep. But also, how does it aid Lincoln in actually being able to make the journey, the power of the railroads and the power of the telegraph really come together in full maturity right about this time in a dispositive way? Right. Absolutely true. The Railroad was transformative of this country and still is important, even though we love our cars, but trains still play an important role. And I I grew up near a train line in Providence, Rhode Island, and I I bet a lot of your listeners still hear that fantastic sound of a train blowing its whistle middle of the night. Um, now it's kind of a nostalgic thing, we, you know, old time America and its railroads. But for Americans in the 1840s and 50s, this was the future coming really fast. And it was powerful for business. Businesses could sell more products all around the country because trains carried them so, so many places. It was um, very helpful in immigration, which I hadn't fully realized. I sort of thought people got on their horses and and just went out West and really a lot of immigrants were coming into New York and Philadelphia and just taking the train into the middle West and then getting off somewhere and starting a new life. Um, And it was very important for politics. It was um, how politicians talked to newspaper editors, how they got their message into the newspapers that got around the country. And um, it was really a massive reorganization of, of information. And so Lincoln comes in more closely identified with railroads, I would say, than any president to that point. He'd been a lawyer for the Illinois right. Central. Mm-hmm. Um, he it took a lot of cases in a lot of different businesses, but he, that was his major client, I would say, was the Illinois Central Railroad of the 1850s. And he likes railroads. He likes talking to the people who operate them. He He had a kind of special pass to ride for free on a railroad. And he just, you know, it was sort of like a moving office for him around Illinois. So he was just very comfortable with what trains were. And one of the things I felt like I discovered, I kind of stumbled on this in my research, was that I felt like as trains are replacing steamboats, they're they're operating in the same regions in a way, but they are very different. Um, steamboats were much better for the slavery economy and railroads were much better for the free economy. And that had never hit me until I did all the research for this book, but a lot of, how so? Well, a lot of big slavery is a rural form of economy. You know, you need a lot of land and you plant a lot of cotton and then you get as many slaves as you can buy. And you would, package your heavy bales of cotton um, near a a river, if you could, like on the Mississippi River, and a steamboat could just pull up every few miles to a different plantation and and load up all the bales of cotton. 
it was inefficient to move heavy bales of cotton by horse and carriage through through small dusty roads in the south. It made more sense to get them onto rivers, onto steamboats. Um, I mean, they did both. And there were trains in the south, but not nearly as many, and they weren't as efficient. In the north, you have trains everywhere, and they bring information everywhere, and they bring notions of democracy with them. And Union Station in Indianapolis mm. sort of personifies this, this idea of you, a crowded downtown with people, with a newspaper office, with shoeshine boys, with g- newspaper seller boys, um, with men and women, rich and poor, all coming through this sort of bustling hub of democracy. And it's, I mean, later railroads, we know, were involved with political corruption and, and the accumulation of great wealth. So we don't want to whitewash that history. But as they were coming into their great central usefulness to Americans in the 1840s and 50s, I really think they they shook things up in a good way. They gave people the ability to move about the country more freely. They spread information like the internet of their of their day. And it became harder for slavery to survive in a railroad economy. Slavery liked secrecy. Um, it, it, pe- pe- people who it saw... Was, it was insular. It was an right. insular enterprise. Right. So um, Lincoln, as the railroads as the first railroad president, I think you could say, is coming out of all of it. Um, Freedom of information, economic opportunity, especially for the middle class, for people and for immigrants, um, and a a sense that uh, people should look out for each other, that as this remarkable prosperity was coming into the railroad communities of the Midwest and, and the North, that they should bring other people with them. And the northern states, like Indiana, um, all had clauses in the foundation uh, language of of each state, giving a certain amount of land to state universities. And that, you know, that tradition did not exist in the South. So information and education were important in Ohio and Indiana and Illinois. They were... um, you know, the old Northwest territories, which become those states, were a kind of um, clean slate of a better America mm-hmm. to come that in the 1780s, the North and South agree. They're not mad at each other yet or not in the same way. And they're, they agree. And that's what Lincoln talks about in the Cooper Union Address, that they had this chance to build a better America in the Northwest Territories, and they didn't want slavery to go into Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. So that was the, what America was supposed to be. They were not supposed to double down on slavery. Um, that was Lincoln's whole message. The, the metaphor of the lightning that you use it's so well in the book uh, as it comes to technology, I, I thought that was a very interesting thread as you go through I have to admit that one of the things about your book that I found so smile inducing, if that's a word, is all the coincidences and chance meetings that you chronicle. 
I don't know how many presidents Lincoln, how many future presidents, president elect Lincoln encounters on his journey. I think it's five or six, maybe more. Yeah, it's a lot. You have William McKinley, uh, who I think is the what the 26th, 25th, 25th president. And he's standing in a room and uh, correct me if this if this memory of your book is is fractured, but he's standing in a room. He's obviously just William McKinley, you know, regular guy at that point. And he's standing in a room with a fellow named John Hay, who was Lincoln's secretary, one of Lincoln's secretary, along with Nicolay. And then 25 years later or so, 40 years later, John Hay is Secretary of State to President, yep. Secretary of State to President yep. William there McKinley. There you go. Talk about some of these coincidences, whether it's Benjamin Harrison or James Garfield or or whomever. Then I'm sure that when you when you discovered them through your research, you had to say like, okay, that's in the book. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of my discoveries came from hunches and. So many presidents after Lincoln, I mean, they're, they're all Republican for a long time, and they come heavily from Ohio, and Harrison is from Indiana. But I just thought all these middle-aged or youngish Republicans are probably checking out Lincoln as he comes through, because it was such a big deal. Exactly. And I just found out, yep, they all were there. So Benjamin Harrison is in Indianapolis, and Rutherford B. Hayes is in, um, he actually was on the train, I believe, between Indianapolis and Cincinnati, I think. That stuff is so good. Uh, Yeah, and then William Howard Taft is like a one-year-old in Cincinnati. So, I mean, I don't think he was conscious of Lincoln, but he's he's there. And... um, Garfield is there. Grover Cleveland is in Buffalo. Um, Chester A. Arthur is in Albany. It's just almost every stop, there's some up-and-coming young Republican. Cleveland's a Democrat, but the others are Republicans. So, yeah, that was fun. One of the things I read in your book, which I have to confess, either if I'd read it in previous Civil War histories, I didn't remember it. But when I read it in your book, it jolted me a little bit because I'm like, God, I never thought of that. And that was the the chance or the opportunity or the 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 embryonic drive on behalf of Southern sympathizers to actually take over Washington, D.C. You think of Washington, D.C. like it's it's invaded, whether it's Fort Stedman or, you know, they threaten it. And when Lee goes to the north, but that's later on when the war happens. I'd never really read an account or an episode where the where people who were sympathetic to slavery and Southerners and, and the embryonic Confederacy actually like, well, we're just going to take over the federal capital. That was fascinating. I thought so too. I'm really glad you mentioned that because that was another one like you, I've read a whole bunch of civil war books and I had never heard that. And it just seems so significant that in the months between his election when he's just stuck out in Illinois and when he actually becomes president in March, there were all these pressures to pull Washington DC, which is a very Southern city anyway, and pull it into this new Southern Confederacy. And it would not have been hard to do from a military point of view. There was barely any defense of Washington anyway. And so what 
they were thinking about doing was um, militias. And, you know, when I was writing this book, we had not yet gotten to January 6th of this year, but there were all these similarities this year that I, you know, I just, I couldn't believe, but um, there was a former governor of Virginia named Henry Wise who wanted Mm -hmm. to get, you know, we only needed like a hundred or 200 men and he could have come in and taken over the U S Capitol. And had he done that, he would have had more than half of the U S government in that single building. He would have had both chambers of Congress and the Supreme Court and the Library of Congress and a lot of the cabinet officials. Um, the White House was just the home the president lived in, and the Treasury building was its own building, and there was a patent office, but everything else was in the Capitol. So you really only need one building and you've got it all. And it's and, safe to, it's, would it be, an exaggeration to call Washington D.C. the the, the pre-war capital of slavery. I've increasingly found that to be true. That it was really where the South wanted the capital to be, and where they very successfully protected slavery for three generations, um, and where slavery was practiced openly in the streets, and it was just how they how they wanted it. It was practiced in the streets and protected in the halls. Yep, exactly. We don't do politics much on the Leaders and Legends podcast, mostly because it's insane. (laughs) But you mentioned just a few minutes ago about uh, January 6th, and and my former boss is a fellow named Mike Pence. Uh Uh-huh, right. Who who I worked for briefly. uh, And I think his actions with regard to the election, the Electoral College in that day are very courageous, very brave, yes. and very honorable. I, I mentioned agree. that only, thank you for that. I mentioned that only because in his own ironic way, future Confederate general, future, I think, Secretary of War, is that right? Uh, for the Confederacy, John Breckinridge, who was serving as Vice President of the United States for the worst president in history, James Buchanan, in my view. Yep. But Vice President Breckinridge played, despite what he did after his time as vice president, while he was vice president to certify the election of 1860, would you describe Breckinridge's actions as honorable because he had all the electoral vote tallies in yes. his possession? He could have done whatever he wanted with them especially in this time of insurrection, and yet he didn't. Talk a little bit about, please, about his role and his actions. I agree. He was honorable, too. The uh, similarities were uncanny, really, because in each case you've got a vice president who's very near the levers of power. Our transitions are are pretty shaky. You know, we think we're like a perfect democracy and we, I think are still learning that we have some vulnerabilities in our, our system. And it is asking a lot for the most powerful person on earth to just walk away and let someone else come in and take over. It really, really is asking a lot. And we saw that with the incredible pressure put on Vice President Pence, which he he stood up to. I I agree with you. It was very courageous. 
And it was a little different with John Breckenridge because I don't think James Buchanan was putting any pressure on him. James Agreed. Buchanan was on his way out and it was sort of falling apart as a, <laughs> in the last few weeks, he seemed not very healthy mentally. He had kind of a facial tick and he couldn't make a decision and he just was not looking good in the last and he few let, weeks. And he let people like uh, John Floyd, Secretary of exactly. War, I think it was John Floyd, his first name. Is yeah, John. wow. Um, just just run wild and, and transfer arms and musicians to the right. southern states. I mean, you know your stuff, Robert. Yeah, that's exactly right. But nevertheless, uh, unlike Mike Pence, John C. Breckinridge had been a candidate in the election and, mm-hmm. and had lost to Lincoln. He came in second, in fact. And so it was this remarkable moment where to do the ceremonial counting of the electoral votes, they were delivered to him. He's the president of the Senate. So each state sent in its its formal, it, it's, I didn't know this, I had to look all this up, but there's something called an electoral certificate, which is a piece of paper like a parchment that each state's assembly, legislature, prints up and sends to the vice president of the United States, who then has all of them. And he's supposed to bring them in. And then the clerk on the floor of the house reads the results and they're tabulated. Everybody knows the results sort of, but what if he lost those pieces of paper? Or what if someone broke into his office and roughed him up a little bit and took the box containing all that? Then, then suddenly it's a little more wide open. And you're on the floor of the House of Representatives, and it's a very different dynamic. Then Congress has its own way of doing things. And in fact, Congress had elected a president in 1824. Andrew Jackson wins the most votes, and it goes into Congress, and Congress comes up with a different guy, John Quincy Adams. So all And that's why it's called the corrupt bargain. That's right. But Breckenridge did his job. In this job. case, it was chaos. It was I mean, chaos. If, if you're Breckenridge and you're from, I think he's from Kentucky, isn't that right? Yes, that's right. Yep. Breckenridge is from Kentucky. He very, very soon after leaving the vice presidency becomes a general in right. the Confederate Army, eventually a cabinet member. But let's stick with the general part. So, so clearly, you know, secession and his loyalties are for the South. He would have to be much like other places in the border. And you'd say D.C. would be border, obviously. Chaos is the name of the game, right? Chaos helps the Confederates. Right. It helps the cause of secession. But yet he doesn't succumb to that. That's right. You know, it's such an interesting transitional moment. And some future Southerners, including Robert E. Lee, are still feeling a lot of tugs on the heartstrings for the the Union. They wouldn't say for the North. They would say for the United States of America. They love the flag of the USA. They have fought for the flag. It's really hard for these guys to go over to a new thing that is not the USA that is even going to be fighting against the flag of the USA. And similarly, a lot of Northerners have not quite settled into where they're going to be. It's like lava that hasn't yet cooled. And and so emotions are are raw 
And Lincoln has to do the best he can to shape all of these emotions in, in the right direction. And that's why he talks a lot about American history and what we have been through together to try to get these people whose emotions are all over the place back in with him. And I, I actually think it's pretty similar to what, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be political either, but I think President Biden has been pretty good at trying to talk about our history, who we are when we are at our best, and not blaming other people too much, you know, trying to sort of take the high road. And that's, that's what Lincoln was trying to do at exactly that moment. We have just a few minutes left on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking with Professor Ted Widmer about his book, Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. I wouldn't say this should be the first Civil War book that you read because it's always good to start with general histories so you can get the flavor. But it needs to be the next book you read about the American Civil War. It's absolutely superb. You mentioned quite a bit, and it's you take a part of it. Um, the last few minutes we have left in each one of your chapters, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the journey. Why was it important for you to weave that in, to make that connection? Well, I hesitated, believe me, because I thought it was borderline either random or pretentious. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of pretentious to throw in Greek literature in a book about American history. But it's a beautiful book. I, I first read it and I didn't understand it very well. I, I'll, I'll be honest. Now I'm older and I go back to it and I, I love it. And it's about a lot of things. It's about a man who's in a fair amount of pain. It reads to me almost like a war veteran struggling to get back the life he had before conflict. And he's, trying to get back from Troy, where there has been a bloody war, which the Greeks won. He's a Greek. And he's got a long way to go to get back to Ithaca, an island where his wife and son are, he hopes. And he hopes his wife is still alive and, and faithful to him. He doesn't know. And he hopes his son is alive and healthy. And he has all these adventures and difficulties. And it's sort of like healing. He's like getting back to the person he used to be. And I felt like Lincoln is trying to heal a country that is, is pretty unwell. And part of it is going through America and seeing all these places. And that happens in the Odyssey. It's like a, a picture book about Greece, which also has you know complicated country with a lot of different parts in it. And getting toward a better place, getting toward a, a moment when the country was more innocent and people treated each other better. And so it felt to me, I mean, it's not identical. Um, Lincoln is not going toward his family. He's got his family with him. So that's, that's a difference. But I just found the Odyssey sort of haunting and beautiful. And it felt like Lincoln's 2,000-mile journey through America had epic qualities. Um, there is great courage displayed by him. Um, there are there's a search for truth that's very difficult. If it's easy to find truth, it's not really an epic. If you struggle and you have setbacks, but you persevere and you achieve wisdom, then I think you're getting into the territory of epic literature from many different countries. Um, and I think Lincoln 
was in a way achieving a kind of epic journey, including the, the literature of his speeches. And to me, it felt like he rose up to a very high level. The adversity was through the roof. The challenges from the South, trying to form a new country and the, the division within his own country, people who are not united at all at that moment in our history, and his keeping it all together and bringing us back toward a wiser understanding of ourselves felt to me almost like a spiritual journey as well as a political journey. So I, I thought a little bit of Odyssey, I didn't do too much, I hope, but a little bit of Odyssey just reminded us our own history is, is very great. We end all Leaders and Legends podcasts with the same five questions to all of our guests. But before I get to those five questions, I want to ask you very quickly, given how Abraham Lincoln's life ended, was it difficult to write about the assassination attempts, which were very real, whether it's Baltimore or you mentioned about the bomb or other things on the railroad tracks? Is it just, did you find it like going, you know, he escapes all these, but. Well, I got to tell you, my answer is almost the opposite that I, I do feel sadness whenever I get near the assassination and I mostly avoided studying it and teaching it because I do find it painful to go near. And I have since my own childhood when I, I think I read a book about Lincoln in fourth grade and then had a little picture of him on my wall. And, you know, I didn't really want to go near the assassination. Um, but the reason this book helped to heal that feeling, it was kind of the opposite, is because he survives the attempts in 1861 and by surviving becomes the Abraham Lincoln we know and love, some, some of us. Um, and we got four years of Lincoln, and that was enough. You know, the four years he was president were four of the most important years of any presidency in our in our history. So I felt less traumatized by the successful assassination because I was aware of how close he came to assassination on the way in. And by surviving that, I felt a kind of gratitude. So I, I felt I feel in balance now. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, we end the Leaders and Legends podcast with the same five questions to all of our guests. Professor Widmer, are you ready? Yep. I sure am, Robert. Number one, what was your first job? I was a camp counselor. Like in summer meatball, camp. Summer like in meatballs? Like Bill Murray? I, I wish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a humble little camp for little kids in, in Providence, Rhode Island. Number two. We should notice that we should note that Rhode Island is the home of the incredible Lincoln scholar and booster Frank Williams, who's a wonderful I mean, man. I met him just one time. Man. He's a terrific, terrific, very generous man. Yes, he is. Number two, what was your first concert? The Eagles. I saw the Eagles in about 1975. They were extremely popular, and um, my my younger brother. I'm embarrassed to say. He had better connections to tickets than than I did. He got a couple extra tickets and invited me, his older brother. So that was fun. Eagles for a first concert is not bad at all. Okay, these next 
two are pretty tough. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Well, you know, you put the Odyssey in my head. I probably wouldn't have said this otherwise, but I discovered a beautiful translation. You know, it's a little hard to read the poetry, mm-hmm. but the book was just translated for the first time by a woman. She's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I believe her name is Emily Wilson. And it was just a really readable, accessible version of Homer's Odyssey. So I think I'll say that. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Well, I just said I didn't want to be there for Lincoln's assassination, but I, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I don't think we'll ever get over the JFK assassination. It's so strange an event, so hard to understand, and it's like the more we study it, the less we understand it. And you can watch it. You can watch it and understand it better and, you know, be on the grassy knoll and try to figure out exactly what's going on. That would be pretty interesting. It's it's almost the assassination itself is awful, but it's almost more heart rendering to watch the video of them at Love Field. It is, and where you're like, oh god, just get back on, on the plane. I, I think yeah. I told you we had Clint Hill. Oh, oh See, really? We Clint Hill came on the podcast uh, and talked about that day. Uh, mm, wow, it's just the tears are yeah there. horrific. A last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Oh, wow. That is a toughie. I mean, the the mind goes to presidents immediately, but I... And they're the most popular answer. Yeah, but you know what? This might surprise you. I am a big fan of Pope Francis, and I am not even Catholic. So you'd think I would be Catholic, but I just admire him. I think he's a very thoughtful Pope. Talk about running a difficult bureaucracy. And um, and I think he's a real leader. He's a thought leader. He's saying interesting things. Popes write these documents called encyclicals, and mm-hmm. I think they're even in Latin. So I, I'm not going to be reading that one, but they're translated immediately. And he's just saying important things about the internet, how we need to stay together as human beings. We need to, you know, young people need to respect old people, people who live in small towns. It's kind of like Lincoln's farewell address need to appreciate each other. People who live in huge cities need to appreciate farmers. I think our political divisions in this country wouldn't be so bad if we appreciated different forms of work a little better and he's quite mindful of environmental damage and without being, uh, you know, he's not that political because he's, he's, he has to be the Pope, but he's just telling us, let's protect our earth. It's the only one we've got and let's listen to each other. And I just, it's a different way of talking about current events. I mean, he's got the perspective of thousands of years and I, I just like everything that he writes. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, 
Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Professor Ted Widmer. He wrote a terrific, terrific book called Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. Please read his book. You will be much the better for it. Your understanding of Lincoln, your understanding of this time period in our country will be richly enhanced by the time you spend. Thank you very much, Ted. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Robert. Such good and well-informed questions. I, I loved it. So thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. 